in John's gospel, the point at which God's glory is most powerfully revealed is as Jesus Christ dies on the cross. As his blood is poured out for us, as his body is broken for us, that is for John, the moment when the glory of God is most powerfully revealed. And for 2000 years, Christians have gathered around various kinds of tables, giving it various names to remember that Jesus died for us. We drink juice and eat bread here in Dundonald Elam every week on the first day of the week as our, one of our first acts of worship to remind us that what Jesus did for us sits at the center of our lives. So if you are a Christian, I invite you this morning to eat bread and drink juice to remember Jesus' blood and body shed and broken for you. If you're not yet a Christian, I invite you to become one by surrendering your life to Jesus Christ, asking him to forgive you of your sin and walking in his way. But if you're not a Christian and you choose not to become one, please don't eat the bread or drink the cup. And if you are a follower of Christ that is not walking with him, if you're arguing and fighting with brothers and sisters, then please either put that right, resolve to put it right, or don't eat the bread and don't drink the cup. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this bread is my body, which is broken for you. In the same manner, after supper, he took a cup of wine and he drank from it and he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink from it, all of you. Of the Apostle Paul in his first letter to the Corinthians says, examine your own hearts that you don't eat this bread or drink this cup in an unworthy way because to do so is to eat and drink damnation to yourself. So in the beautiful stillness of the music playing and a time when we don't need words, as the bread is passed to you, eat it in thanksgiving for all that God has done for you. And then when the cup is passed, hold on to it and we will drink it together to remind us that we're one body. Campbell, I'm going to ask if you would mind just thanking God this morning for his son's body and his son's blood shed for us. Our Father, this morning we thank you for this opportunity of coming around this table of hands. Thank you, Lord, for the precious blood that was shed at Calvary. Well, thank you, we praise you, Lord, that Jesus came to give us life and his body so that we might have everlasting life. And Father, we think of this bread that reminds us of the body which was barred more than any man's. We realize when the soldier pierced his side forthwith came blood and water. We can say the truth this morning. We have washed our robes in the blood of Jesus and now we're sons and we're daughters of the living God. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord, this morning, as children of God, we have washed our robes. And this morning, as we take this in remembrance, Lord, help us, O God, not only today, but each day remember the greatness of the love of God, which was shed so freely at the cross of Calvary. And as we take these emblems this morning, Father, may our minds and our hearts go back to that place in Calvary, where the greatest love that ever was known was shed to mankind. We ask in the Saviour's precious name, give you our thanks. Amen. Could those that are going to serve please come forward and could I ask the pastors, uh, the elders of the church to come and help me serve please. Campbell, could you come and help as well?
you need gluten-free bread, it's in the little silver dish at the center of the plates. Thank you. That's it. Thank you.
If you hold on to the cup, we will drink it together. As you receive this, let's sing together the first couple of verses of a song called Anastasis, which is a Greek word that means resurrection. It begins, um, it speaks of the death of Christ and his burial. And the first few verses invite us to think solemnly and seriously about what Jesus did for us before we reach the celebration at the end. So let's sing these thoughtfully and then we'll take communion together. We'll drink wine together. I cast my mind to Calvary. Thank you, Lord. cleanses us from all sin that brings hope and life and a fresh start to each of our souls and we praise you today that our Saviour did not stay dead that he rose from the grave that sin and death and darkness and hell were defeated by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ 
We give you thanks. We give you worship. We adore you. Let praise rise in our hearts. Let thanksgiving flow from our lips as we declare our Savior is alive. Death has been defeated. Calvary accomplished its work. There is hope because Christ has risen. Let's stand together and sing the last verse of this song. We exalt your name. Let praise rise in your hearts, sisters and brothers, as we sing this. On the third at break of dawn, the sun of Thanks, Almighty God, that your Son has risen. And we thank you for the power of your purpose and your presence in our lives. It lifts us. It gives us hope. It transforms us. And as we turn to your word, would you speak to us through it and have your way amongst us in the powerful name of Jesus Christ and for his glory. Amen. Please sit down. If you don't know who I am, my name is Malcolm. I lead the church here at Dundonald. Thanks for joining us online or here in the room. If you're here for the first time, do say hello to us so that we can um, say hello back and get to know you and um, make sure that we can answer any of the questions that you might have. Before Christmas, um, we were traveling through the book of Acts. We'd spent several weeks in it, but by the end of November had only reached really the beginning of Acts chapter 3. And I'd like you to return with me to that chapter of the Bible as we pick up our conversation around that um, story of the early church and explore what God might say to us today. Acts chapter 3. I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's 26 verses. Um, So I recognize that it is a, a long reading, but I think it is an important one. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer at three o'clock in the afternoon. And a man, lame from birth, 
was being carried in. People would lay him daily at the gate of the temple called the beautiful gate so that he could ask for alms. Alms are um, religious gifts of money and food and help for the, from those entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked them for alms. Peter looked intently at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold. But what I have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Jumping up, he stood and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him as the one who used to sit and ask for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's portico, utterly astonished. When Peter saw it, he addressed the people. You Israelites, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and rejected in the presence of Pilate, though he had decided to release him. But you rejected the Holy and Righteous One and asked to have a murderer given to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And by faith in his name, his name itself has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given him this perfect health in the presence of all of you. And now, friends, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. In this way, God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets that his Messiah would suffer. Repent, therefore, and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Messiah appointed for you, that is, Jesus, who must remain in heaven until the time of universal restoration that God announced long ago through his holy prophets. Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you from your own people a prophet like you. You must listen to whatever he tells you. And it will be that everyone who does not listen to that prophet will be utterly rooted out from the people. And all the prophets, as many as have spoken from Samuel and those after him, 
also predicted these days. You are the descendants of the prophets and of the covenant that God gave to your ancestors, saying to Abraham and in your descendants, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Amen. I know that reading of God's word took five minutes, but God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. This is a remarkable story that is made less remarkable in our heads and in our hearts if we've grown up singing about it. Walking, leaping, praising God. Children's choruses sung in Sunday school classes. Or it's made less remarkable because we get used to it. We have read it many times and it becomes a part of our story. But the remarkable nature of this chapter has been gripping me for five or six weeks again and causing me to ask the most profound and challenging questions of myself, of my ministry, and of this church and where we are going. When you read this story, you discover in it a man who has spent his life being carried backwards and forwards to the gate outside the temple in Jerusalem, where he has been left there every day by friends so that he can beg for alms. He has become the object and the subject of pity and charity and nothing else. Every day they lift him and carry him to the temple and leave him at the gate. Except on this day, everything changed. He came looking for food, for company, for a few shekels, for enough water or bread to eat for the day, and walked out, restored, healed, and utterly transformed. This man must have been seen by those that went to the temple regularly. Somebody probably people missed or I diverted their gaze from, except on this day. They'd got used to him being there. He'd got used to being there. But on the day that Peter and John went to the temple and he was healed, everything changed. I often wonder about this story and its power in the early church's life. And then I wonder about its power in our lives. If you read Matthew chapter 21, the story of Jesus cleansing the temple, people are pretty familiar with it. He drives out money changers and tax people that are uh, charging exorbitant tax rates and charging more than they should for the animals that are for sacrifice. And he quotes from the prophet Isaiah as he drives them out and says, you have turned my father's house, which is supposed to be a house of prayer, into a den of thieves. Matthew 21 tells, is one of the gospels that tells that story. What's often missed is in verse 14 of Matthew chapter 21. Immediately he has done that. We read that the poor and the lame and the sick came to him there and he healed them. Men and women who had been locked out of the religious system of Israel by exorbitant taxes, by hypocritical attitudes, by religious men and women that classed them as not good enough are suddenly able to meet with God through Jesus Christ. 
just a matter of weeks later, it looks like they're locked out again. It doesn't take long for religious systems to lock out those that need God most, don't you think? To keep them away from the very center of God's purposes and plans. But Jesus will have none of it. And in this story, we read of the same Savior that Peter and John have encountered in Acts chapter 2, the day the church was birthed, the day of Pentecost. On that day, tongues of fire descended on them. They spoke in languages they hadn't learned. And the people in Jerusalem heard them in their own language and understood what was being said. They thought they were drunk, some of them. And Peter gets up and explains, no, we aren't drunk. And he quotes from an ancient prophet called Joel. And he says, this is what was prophesied or promised or foretold by the prophet Joel, that young men and old men, young women and old women, slaves and free, would all encounter the power of the Holy Spirit. And that they would prophesy and see dreams and have visions. But in chapter 2, verse 17, and in chapter 2, verse 19, and in chapter 2, verse 22, and verse 32, and verse 36, Peter says things that are challenging to the people of Israel as they listen on this day. He tells them in verse 17 that God will show symbols and portents and signs in the sky and on the earth that Christ's power is real. In verse 19, we read these words, and I will show portents in the heaven above and signs on the earth below. In verse 22, Peter says this in chapter two in this great sermon that birthed the church, Listen to what I have to say. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power. Wonders and signs that God did through him amongst you, as you yourselves know. He talks about who Jesus is and what he's done. And in verse 32, he says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that all of us are witnesses. And then in verse 36, he says this, Therefore let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus, whom you crucified. The healing of the man at the gate in Acts chapter 3 is a testimony, an evidence of the message of Jesus Christ being real and true. And I want to reflect on it with you for a few moments today because I think it is deeply important for our future as a church, perhaps even for the future of God's church on this island. God meets this man in an ordinary day, in an ordinary everyday moment, and heals him. Verse 1 of chapter 3 says, One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. One day like any other day. One ordinary, simple, straightforward day. One day you decided to come to church and God changed your life. One day you decided to go to a meeting and God met with you. One day with all of your worries and your anxieties, another day, a Wednesday or a Sunday or a Friday or a Saturday, whatever day it might be, just one ordinary day can become an extraordinary day in the power and the purposes of God, the Holy Spirit. We see Peter and John here with holy habits going to the temple, as verse 1 tells us, together, living in community, sharing life, going to the temple. We know that means they were going to worship at the hour of prayer. There is a power in holy devotion 
gathering together week after week, day after day. Some would say out of habit, if it's a holy habit, it's a good habit. Gathering to support one another, gathering to pray, gathering to worship. But on this ordinary day, when they were going through their ordinary cycle of going to the temple as they ordinarily did, they saw a man and they were attentive to him and he to them. In verse 3 of chapter 3, we read that this man made a request for alms, food, money, water, help. A Jew had an obligation to share alms with people in their community if they saw him. So his friends, presumably day in and day out, have given up hope of God ever doing anything. We'll take him to the temple and leave him at the gate and collect him on the way out. Much like many of us do with our burdens. Or our prayer requests. We give up hope of God intervening. We'll take them to church. Leave them at the door and carry them again on the way out. This man asks for help in verse 3. And Peter, we are told in verse 4, sees him. The word is different to just notices him. He sees him. And then we're told that Peter and John presumably ask the man who is not named to look at them. He calls, Peter and John call this lame man's attention to them. They say, not just glance at us, look at us. Give us your attention. For 15 minutes or so, I want you to look at me. I want you to give me your attention. Not think about everything else that needs to get done this week. Not think, oh, well, I've got this and this and this going on. Please look at me. And listen to what I am saying. And then we're told in verse 5 that the man looks at them with expectation in his heart. He looks expecting something. Do you come to church expecting something? Do you come to God's word expecting something? With the conviction that the power of the Holy Spirit could be at work in your life Today, do we as a congregation expect something? A few weeks ago, I sat with my colleagues and had a wonderfully helpful conversation about what a sermon is for. What's a sermon for? So that you can go away saying, I never knew that. How amazing. I'll write it in my notes when I get home. Do you expect God to do something? I don't know how many thousand sermons I have preached over the years. But I expect God to do something with a sermon. I expect him to release something through his word. I have to say that in many ways I think one of the greatest gifts of my salvation, I don't mean my salvation in the eternal sense, but one of my greatest, the greatest gifts given to me in my understanding of how preaching and teaching works is that the church in which I got saved, and you can Rest assured, I am a Christian. That's good news. <laughs> I was taught very simply that when the gospel is preached, God sets people free. It was a simple expectation. And over the years, I've returned to it again and again. I have this simple expectation. When the gospel is proclaimed, God sets people free. He sets them free from their sin. He sets them free from sickness. 
He sets them free from demonic control. He sets them free from fear. God sets people free. And yet so very often we gather and go and gather and go and gather and go. This man expected to receive something from Peter and from John. From verse 6 down to verse 7, actually down to verse 10, it's often misunderstood. Verse 6, Peter says, uh, we don't have any money to give you. Silver and gold have I none, bum bum, but such as I have give I thee, bum bum. There's no bum bum in the Greek. But what I have, I give you. And then he reaches out his hand and tells the man to get up. And we're told that he raises him up and immediately his bones, his ankles are strengthened. What's clear is this is a miracle. This man carried in and out of the temple every day, stands up, not wobbly, stands up and walks and leaps and praises God. Verse 10 tells us something which I think is incredibly important. All the people, verse 9, saw him walking and praising God and they recognized him as the one who used to sit and ask for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what God had happened, at, at what had happened to him. Mistake that I think many Pentecostal and charismatic preachers make about this story and many other stories in the New Testament of healing is to suggest in any way, shape, or form that the healing is a vindication of the messenger. That is never the case in the Bible. It's never the case. A miracle performed by God in the midst of a congregation is never the vindication of the, of the preacher. It is always a vindication of the message. It's always a vindication of the person being preached, not the person who is preaching. I have sat under men and women's ministries and seen God do the most remarkable things and then heard people saying, obviously they are anointed by the Holy Spirit because of this, that, or the other thing. Then weeks or months later, that preacher falls, that preacher goes wayward, that preacher loses their way. In the Bible, the presence of the miraculous is always a vindication of the message of Jesus Christ, of his death and his burial and his punishment for sin and his resurrection. I've heard people preach on this passage and say, this is a vindication of John and of Peter. It shows that and God vindicates his servants that somehow you have the power to heal. You are a healer. That's not what the Bible teaches. Here in this passage, if you move down toward the explanation that Peter gives, from verse 10 on, he says very, very, very clearly, do not think that we have power in ourselves to perform this miracle. This has not been done at our hand. Instead, it is in the name of Jesus and the power of that name alone that this man is standing before you. But that leaves a challenge for me. Because with that being said, this man is healed. He gets up and he walks and he leaps and he praises God. And his presence becomes a powerful witness to the people of Jerusalem. And the whole city is talking about it. Verse 10 tells us that. 
Not that he heard Peter and John preach, not that um, he was their friend, but that he was healed. The way the Bible describes it is clear. This is the man that used to be unable to walk and is now able to walk, and they are mesmerized, and they are, they are um, trapped into what happened here. How did this happen? And Peter explains that it happens by the power of Jesus Christ. In verses 11 through to 26, he gives God the glory. In verse 12 and verse 16, he makes it perfectly clear. Verse 12, when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, you Israelites, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though we by our own power or piety have made him walk? Verse 16, and by faith in his name, Jesus' name, his name itself has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given him this perfect health in the presence of all that you know. So what does the story say to you today? If you're a follower of Jesus for a moment, what does this story say to you? I've been reading this every morning for three months. And every morning I end up on my knees, crying out to God and saying, Lord, do this again. Do this in our church family. Do it in our community. Touch people and make them well. Transform lives. Transform hearts. I am deeply challenged and deeply struck by what goes on in Acts chapter 3. And as we begin to explore this Book again, I want to bring you right back to this. We need to see God in the here and the now. Northern Ireland will not be transformed by good churches that simply preach and preach and preach. Nor will the Republic of Ireland, nor will Europe. We need a demonstration of the Spirit's power. For some of you coming from churchmanships where you're not used to that, that frightens you. There's nothing to be frightened of. This isn't madness. This isn't craziness. This isn't chaos. This isn't mayhem. What we see in Acts chapter 3 is a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Then Donald Elam needs to see a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Here, there are several things happening at once. Revelation, encounter, the miraculous, and truth. Why was it that Peter and John saw this man differently on this day? Something of God's revelation was at work. I'm an evangelical, and proud of that with a small p and a small e. <laughs> There's no Ian Proud, I meant Ian Evangelical. <laughs> but I want to tell you something. As an evangelical, I also believe in the power of Pentecost, the presence and anointing of the Holy Spirit. I have said this before, and I'm going to say it to you again. This is not a lectern. A lectern is where you lecture from and fill people's heads with knowledge and understanding. A pulpit, in the words of Henry Melville, who wrote Moby Dick. He did write Moby Dick. 
Do you know how he describes the pulpit? As the brow, the touching point of heaven that pierces the earth. Like an ice cutter that goes into ice and breaks it open. The pulpit is the touching point of heaven into earth. A sermon is supposed to bring you into living encounter with the powerful eternal God. And here in this story, we see something of the revelation of God going on. I believe that fundamentally and most often in my life, God speaks to me through the scriptures. I've said many times before, in my Christian life of 32 years, I've heard his audible voice twice. But I hear him often in scripture, in circumstances, when I dream, when I think, when I pray, when I stop, when I pause in conversations, God has more to say to us than we are willing to listen. And I want to say to you, Dundonald Elam, I want to say to you if you're here as a guest, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the thing that you need above and beyond everything else is not just good understanding, but you need the Holy Spirit's revelation of who he is and what he wants to say into your heart and into your life. Acts has 28 chapters. 27 of them have extraordinary revelation from God. Whether it's visions or dreams or words or promises, the book of Acts is a book about the work of the Holy Spirit. The early church didn't call it the book of Acts. They called it the book of the Acts of the Holy Spirit. I am unashamedly longing for God to break into our gatherings by the power of the Holy Spirit. Unashamedly hungry for him to touch broken lives and bring life and wholeness and healing. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John could have walked past that man. Many others did. But because they stopped, because they saw, because they heard, because they were obedient, because they did what Jesus had asked them to do, there was an encounter that led to miraculous freedom. How often do we look out and see in our gatherings the same situations that never seem to change, that never seem to be broken? A never-ending list of things that need to be prayed for, as you said this morning, Tyler. And whether God moves or not, we trust him. But do we actually trust him to move? Are we calling out to him for his miraculous intervention in the lives of men and women? It strikes me that Acts chapter 3 is laden, is pregnant with expectation, pregnant with the presence of God. And in it we see the miraculous intervention of God. And when God miraculously intervenes, God exp uh, Peter explains to the people what's happening. This is not to vindicate me, he says. This is to vindicate Jesus. This is not so that you can think I'm some kind of special person or John is some kind of special person. This miracle that you see vindicates Jesus. There's still power in that name. There's still power to heal in that name. There's still power to transform in that name. There's still power to give hope to hopeless people in that name. But we have to let him have a bit of space to do it, folks. And be willing always to give him the glory. What kind of church does Northern Ireland and Ireland need? I heard this morning about yet another person, young woman, who watches perhaps our services online, 
who has been told that she has terminal cancer and there's nothing that they can do. Last week, four of our young people lost grandparents. We had three funerals one day after another. I know that we are a growing and a busy church and I know that life is difficult and things happen, but I am also aware that this is great sadness, great sorrow and great pain and great distress and great heartbreak being carried by so many. And I will stand and serve and love and pray and visit and care with every ounce of energy that I have until God takes me home. But I tell you, I will also believe that God can break in. That he can do something, that he is able. How hungry are you for the living, breathing, palpable presence of the Holy Spirit? Jesus Christ in John chapter 3 was visited by a band called Nicodemus. And Nicodemus said to him, Teacher, we know that you are sent from God. Because no man could do these miraculous signs otherwise. Could God move in miraculous power here? I don't mean next week. I mean now. There are women and men sitting in this room who are facing uncertainty in their health that you don't know anything about. But I believe that God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is able to move in this situation. That he's able to bring healing and wholeness and strength. And I want to ask you to make a decision in your head and in your heart. Many of you responded last Sunday morning, last Sunday evening to an invitation to lay our lives at God's feet. I was profoundly moved. I love reading about revivals and renewals. They inspire me. The 1859 revival, let's have a meet and talk about it. I love it. The 1904 Welsh revival, the Hebridean revival. When men and women's lives were transformed and changed. I love it. But I don't want to spend my life reading about them. I want to live in a moment like that. I was reflecting on this this week. I don't know whether this is the Lord or just me. So don't panic. <laughs> Captain Mannering. <laughs> if God moved here this morning... And we said, you know what? Every night this week, we're going to just seek his face and see what he does. If God genuinely broke out in awakening and renewal and revival, how quickly would it take you to stop attending? We'll let God move, but so long as it fits with our timetable. So long as he does it on a Wednesday, because that's when we meet he couldn't possibly break in on a Monday. He couldn't ask us to disrupt our meeting arrangements, could he? What if he did? And I don't know whether God is asking me to come here every night and get on my knees and seek his face. I don't know whether he's about to break out in power in our fellowship and in this land, but I have a sense that there is a dam that is about to burst. 
that there is something that is about to break out. I don't know whether it's in Donald Elam, I don't mean that, but there's something about to break out somewhere on this island. God wants to visit the province of Northern Ireland in a new powerful way that will see bodies healed, lives restored, families transformed, men and women brought into the kingdom and will disrupt us. And I have to say to you with all of the genuineness of my heart that I can muster, I don't care where that is, I want to be part of that. But I do believe with all of my heart that he wants to move in this church. Peter and John looked at this man. It's easy to preach it, isn't it? Sing a song, close and send everybody home. Because then you don't have to confront the reality of being asked to step out in faith. Peter and John looked at him and said, look at us. Now stand up. I'm not going to call you forward. I'm not sure that calling people forward is the equivalent of stand up. But I do want to pray for you. I want to pray that God will visit this place. By the way, that doesn't mean that I'm never going to call you forward. You can't contain God. God doesn't say, well, I'll fit into your plans, than Donald Elam. I understand that you don't want me to move in this way, so I never will. Sometimes he says, oh, you don't want me to move like that. I think I will. Because what I would need to do is disrupt you. I need to know that you will pursue me, not just what you think I'm like, but who I really am in these words. I think God wants to do something this morning. Here, in this place. And I'm willing to be foolish. I'm willing to be, to look silly. That's okay. Would you bow your heads, please? I first of all want to pray for those that are not part of our gathering physically here. If you're joining us online and you are desperate for a touch of God, you've been locked out of the gathering for months, you are facing uncertainty with your family, you are, you've been given a, a sentence of death by a doctor or a nurse, And you are crying out to God to touch you. I want to pray for you. And if God touches you in these next few moments or these next few days, would you please get in touch with me so I can share that with this church? You can email me at malcolm at dundonaldelam.church or you can ring. There's a pastoral number on our phone system. And it'll come through to me.
Lord, would you stretch out your hand to heal in the powerful name of Jesus Christ? Men and women watching via the internet, we can name many of them, but not all of them. And they need you to touch them in power. We are asking you, Lord, in the name of Jesus, in the authority of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, not using his name like a mantra, not using it like a talisman, but standing in the authority of the risen Christ. Breathe your healing power across men and women's lives. Bring breakthrough now in the name of Jesus Christ. Set people free who have been bound by fear and anxiety. Set people free physically. Set people free emotionally. Breathe your healing power into men and women's lives in the name of Jesus Christ. And for your glory, Lord, not for ours, for your glory. Oh, hear our cry, almighty God. The Jesus that was crucified and rose again and comes with healing and renewal and refreshing in his gift. Breathe upon people across the world, I pray. And may their lives be changed and transformed. May there be a touch of heaven into people's situations in the powerful name of Jesus. And now here in this place, in this room, I'm asking you, there's no music behind me, there's no, nothing that you can claim is trying to get you into an emotional place, it's just my voice. If you need God to touch you or someone that you know, I want you to just take a moment to focus on them. There are folk in our church family who have been ill since I came. And I don't want to be the person that metaphorically carries them in for charity every week. I believe that God can touch them, bring release to them. And I realize that this might lead us to a new place as a church family, but God is able. Lord, you know the people that are being lifted to you now. You know the people in this room who need a touch from your spirit. You know those that are sick. You know those whose family members are sick. You know those who are struggling and they need you to break in. Those that are caught. Those that don't know how to get out of the situation that they face. Lord, will you breathe your spirit's power across this gathering in the name of Jesus Christ? Will you vindicate not me, but vindicate the cross here? Vindicate the empty tomb here? Breathe into lives and hearts and situations. Bring healing into people's bodies. Save marriages that are falling apart. Move and set people free from addictions. Where folk have given up hope, breathe hope into their hearts in the name of Jesus Christ. 
I pray that you will touch those that are sick in our gathering. Those who are unable to move, those who are finding life difficult, those that are ill, Lord, breathe your healing power. I don't want our church to end up being some kind of spectacle, but nor do I want it to be a museum to the past. Breathe on us, Lord. Breathe into families. Breathe into people. Breathe. I pray that you would anoint and fill and release your Holy Spirit into your people in new and fresh ways. I ask you in the name of Jesus to release your gifts upon your people. And to let them rise up again. I I call into life again those gifts that have lain dormant in men and women's lives. Release gifts of healing and the miraculous and faith. Release the gift of tongues. Release the gift of interpretation. Release the gifts of prophecy and words of wisdom and knowledge. Release your gifts on your people for this season. Breathe upon us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We need you, Lord. We need your grace. We need your strength and we need your power. And we're asking you to come and visit us. In Jesus' holy, glorious, and powerful name. Amen.